week. I couldn't be uh, before all of you, and I thank you for following my life plus twenty twenty five. I thank you for following me on Twitter on my Substack platform, and I'm asking you for help. I'm asking for help because the means for making this fight possible to fight this vendetta, this corruption at the highest governmental levels, with being pursued by a presidentially appointed federal marshal is impossible without your help, without your awareness, without people getting behind me. I don't care if it's a dollar or five dollars. Anything that you contribute helps to make this fight possible because the fight that I'm up, up against is much bigger than me. It's much bigger than a court. This is a very huge vendetta placed against me, and the only way that I can win, the only way that I can draw attention to this is with your support. Welcome back to My Life Plus 25. This is Mario Chavez, and for the last 17 years, I have been wrongfully convicted and incarcerated for a crime that I did not commit. And every week, I talk about different aspects of the case. I delve into questions from listeners, from, from uh, followers. I've talked about the facts of the case, and this is part of my ongoing fight for exoneration. And last week on My Life Plus 25, I talked about the outright fiasco that was my trial, right? About the gambles that my trial counsel Joseph Riggs made with my life, about how he only spent $50 on investigative efforts for my trial, about how I wasn't permitted to confront, through cross-examination, my only accuser, Eloy Montano. Now, I spoke about how the entirety of the police investigation intentionally ignored any and every line of investigation that potentially pointed to the true motives and spark that led to what can appear like a bizarre crime, but wouldn't have appeared that way had the entirety of the, the evidence been investigated. So today on, on episode 17 of My Life Plus 25, I'm going to share with listeners how it was that a business mishap and a divorce in Arizona led to a man losing his life in Mexico. Now, these are details that have never been discussed before, have never seen the light of investigative inquiry by police, not by police, not by investigative journalism, and definitely not by the investigative efforts that should have taken place prior to my trial by my defense counsel. Obviously, for the purposes of the defense. Now, the biggest issue that we've, we've, we've gone over any, any number of times is this, but it was the biggest piece of evidence that the police ignored, and it was the victim's wallet. The fact that several days after my arrest, the victim's wallet miraculously finds its way to a men's locker room at a Jewish community center in Tucson, Arizona, is not a coincidence, because as far as I know, wallets don't have legs, which means that someone had to take the wallet to Tucson sign in, then enter the men's locker room so as to drop it there. Now, when we looked at the member sign-in roster that morning, there were 10 or 11 names in the roster at most, and all of those names were unknown except one, Dennis Moline, my ex-father-in-law, primary business partner, and the man who had been openly threatening my life for about the last six weeks prior to that moment. Immediately, the wallet is discovered, and what does Dennis Moline do? He flees the country, heads to Mexico for a couple of weeks. He said it was a planned vacation to the police, yet no evidence was ever compiled to prove as much. Of course, he 
He eventually realized that there is no arrest warrants or search warrants executed on his residence or place of business, and he returns and agrees to meet with detectives. Now, the interview wasn't recorded, or if it was recorded, it was never disclosed to the, to the defense. Now, what we know of the interview was that Dennis said that he couldn't explain how the murder victim's wallet from New Mexico found its way to be in the same men's locker room with him and a handful of other men. He tells them that he had been in communication with me via email, apparently leaves out the fact that he had been threatening my life, and the police don't apparently ask for his emails or don't study his phone records, bank records, so as to better understand how this wallet gets there. They knew at no time between the murder and the appearance of the wallet had I been in Arizona. There was no evidence of shipping through mail or FedEx. In other words, the question of who had taken the wallet to Dennis was never really given more than a cursory glance by the authorities. Now, the reason that this was such an important question to answer was because the spark that lit the fuse on what appears to be a bizarre crime took place in Arizona, not in Mexico. And everything has to do with this. Everything had to do with the fact that this was an issue between a falling out between business partners and a divorce. Dennis Moline was my father-in-law, and he was my primary business partner in, in, in Arizona. We owned Venzu LLC together, which consisted of Venzu Technology and Planet Wireless. He also bought me out of a company that I owned in Sonora, Mexico, called Sand Dollar Rentals and Tours. Our company, Venzu, then merges with a larger tech company called Brazen Tech. And as part of that merger, Venzu, a company made up of Dennis and I, was given about 12% of the shares in Brazen. Now, I was also given a VP position to head up marketing and sales for the company. Now, outside of the business interests that Dennis and I shared, he was a CPA and also had other businesses and real estate interests in Arizona and Mexico. Now, what was wrong with all this were a few things. One, I was still legally married to his daughter, Nicole, though we had been living physically separate lives almost since the day of our marriage in 2000. The reason being was that we had married for the wrong reasons. We had met when I was finishing my, my undergraduate studies, and I admit that I was very impressed by this woman. She was attractive. She was smart. She was centered in her, as a person and in her career. You know, She was a teacher, a very stable person. We both liked the outdoors. But we wanted different things at a fundamental level. She was several years older than me, and she wanted a family and children. And I told her that I absolutely did not want either of those things. I wanted to make my fortune and get as far away from the pains and torments of my childhood as possible. That's what I wanted. But one day when she tells me that she's pregnant, you know, obviously everything changes. Because even though it wasn't part of my plan, that being fatherhood, I wasn't about to spend a child, my child, any of the torments of sexual abuse or poverty that I had experienced. So against the advice of my family and my friends, I proposed marriage. I was very nervous because I felt like I was committing the biggest mistake of my life. But I met her mother and her father and her entire family and all of them treated me very, very well. Her father especially. I mean, from day one, we were always talking about business. And I was impressed by him. I understood that he had a questionable past from his previous life in Chicago, but I didn't judge him for that. 
in a way, he was kind of like a father that I never had. And he gave me advice on business, and I learned a great deal from him. Now, Nicole often made comments that I was really just marrying her father, not her. And in a way, I mean, there was actually some truth to that. Because the marriage seemed possible only so long as I just focused on the business aspects of it. But then he was, there was another surprise that came up. She tells me that she's had a miscarriage. And before I could even get to the hospital, she's telling me that it's all over and there's no baby. The wedding was already planned and paid for. The invitations had already been sent out. So we were already starting to buy things together, like a vehicle and furniture and lots of other things. And I understood exactly what this meant. You know, there's no baby now. And she must have understood the same thing because, you know, I'm thinking if there's no longer a baby, then why are we getting married? Why rush it? After all, we were only rushing it because she was pregnant. And she preempted what I was thinking by saying, look, if we don't get married now, then we're over. Say goodbye to the business with my dad. Say, to go- say goodbye to all of that. And she knew that I was ambitious and she knew how to use that against me. So, you know, that's not her fault. That's my fault. So despite everyone telling me not to get married, I figured, well, I'll go ahead and do it because even if it doesn't work out, we can get divorced since there's no kids. We bought a house. We started to build a life together, and that's when hell started for for me. Hell. H-E-L-L. I wanted out as soon as I got in. She understood this, but I, I think she ignored it because she hoped that she could get pregnant again and that she could change me. And I grew suspicious of many things, in particular the fact that I knew that she was never really pregnant, and it had all been a ruse, which made me start to investigate. And then everything started to fall apart. I had extramarital affairs. I rented an apartment so I didn't have to be there with her. And I eventually left my career and the country because I knew that she wouldn't follow me to Mexico. But still, she would not sign a divorce. And part of it was her not wanting to, I guess you could say, lose face with her family. And I think part of it was that Like me, she was invested into us. She didn't want to lose financially, just as I felt that I didn't want to lose. But I finally had to let her go into bankruptcy just because I thought that would get her to leave me. But again, it didn't happen. Now, the business in Mexico was not going as successfully as as I had hoped. I was losing big. And the other business partners had already walked. And the person who came to the rescue was Nicole's father. He bought me out, further linking me to Nicole and to him. But again, I couldn't live with her. We tried. It lasted a few months, and we had a long talk, and I told her, look, we need to get divorced. We need to go our separate ways. This was a huge mistake. And she refused. So again, I moved to Phoenix. I mean, all I could do was start from zero. I worked in corporate sales for T-Mobile and and Verizon until I could figure out what was to be done. I absolutely refused to go back to work in, in, in finance. Now, Dennis approaches me, and I felt at the beginning that he actually understood me more than anyone else because he had once been married to the wrong person, Nicole's mother, and ended up divorcing her to marry the love of his life, a choice that I don't think Nicole ever forgave him for. Anyway, we're separated again, and I put together a plan to start a business doing exactly what I was already doing for the larger wireless companies. And I saw an opportunity for what it was, and Dennis, he saw the same thing. And I don't know if he had other motives, but in all actuality, I shouldn't have gone into business with him. I was trying to get out, not further in. But he had helped me with the Mexican business, 
and I felt like I owed him a personal debt of gratitude. So we started our business from which I was the president. And it wasn't long before we came into contact with Brazen Tech. Now they offered to, to do a, a, a merger. We accepted, as I said, and I went from being the president of my own company to the executive vice president of a much larger company. Life was very, very good, except there was a lot of deception. Nicole still wouldn't agree to a divorce. I don't doubt that Dennis, you know, didn't fail to see what was going on between us, but, you know, he was an opportunist until he wasn't. And then he approached me and he says, look, he wasn't going to permit that his daughter get hurt. He was very clear. He said, all the money goes away if I find out that she's unhappy. So he had me by the short hairs, as they say. And it was then that I understood that even if he did understand me as a man, my happiness was never going to be as important as his daughter's. Of course, what I had just learned and they didn't know was that I now had a daughter of my own. The man who had never wanted to have kids suddenly was seeing the world a little differently. And I knew that Dennis Moline and that Dennis's threats would bankrupt me if, if and when I filed for a divorce. So I needed to find a way to avoid that. And the other brazen executives, Gary Zabachnik and Patrick Zabachnik and Reiner Eagle, the other owners of, of Brazen, all three of them understood perfectly well my predicament. So what we did was we put together a new business plan for expanding Brazen, and I made a very big bet that I could arrange a very large infusion of venture capital into Brazen. Of course, I would be handsomely compensated with several million dollars as a commission for said investment. And the only and the game plan was to place the entire commission and the entire value of my Brazen shares, my portion into the hands of a foreign entity that I had already created offshore. Then I would file for divorce and Dennis wouldn't be able to take what, he, what was mine. That was the plan. Now, the reason that I was so pressed to do this was not only because of my daughter, but because there was obviously another woman in the picture who was eager to start a life with me. And as often happens in life, things don't go as planned. The foreign investment didn't come through as planned. Basically, the performance of their due diligence, they things, the investors, mind you, they found things that they, they, they didn't like and they backed out. And in my youth, ego, or flat out desperation to see, to see things go well, I immediately traveled to Mexico and California to try and rescue the deal. But these investors had details, personal details about the backgrounds of two of the three men that I just mentioned in Brazen, which made investment in Brazen impossible because with these details the company would probably never see an IPO and with no IPO on the horizon there was going to be no investment and this news was extremely heartbreaking on many levels for one as a company we had been expending a lot of resources and money to fulfill the objectives of a business plan and meet investor expectations of course while I was trying to make this happen, the other business partners were becoming desperate. I believe wrongly so, because I believe that I could fix things by stalling and delaying the inevitable, but it wasn't looking good. So my future wife, my daughter, all of this was weighing extremely heavy on me. And when I arrived from San Diego on July 9th, 2004, it was to find that our condominium had been burglarized. On July 10th, the Brazen Trio came and admitted that they had burglarized me. 
They took my computer, my passports, basically anything of value. What they were looking for was evidence of fraud, and of course, there was none. But what I didn't know was that Dennis had apparently been experiencing some losses on some other business ventures that had nothing to do with me, and he was desperate to have that infusion of capital from the commission that we would have received. And he convinced himself that I must have fled with money, but it wasn't true. But when the brazen failed to get in touch with me for about 12 hours while I was traveling, they decided to believe Dennis. Hence why they burglarized my condo. And when they didn't find what they were looking for, they wanted to reconcile. First, they wanted me to compensate them for their foreign ho- from, from my foreign holdings for their losses. And that wasn't going to happen. I was, I, was, I was livid. They had violated the sanctity of my home on a hunch, on an accusation that was unfounded. They had stolen my personal property, my documents. And, you know, Dennis even went so far as to turn off my lines of credit, personal, both personal and business. And since they were holding my passports and basically my life, along with my account numbers to my foreign holdings, they wanted to negotiate. On the one hand, I was willing to negotiate with Brazen, but not with Dennis. I felt that he had crossed the, the line on this. And maybe he had didn't, but I felt that he did. So immediately, because, you know, the condo and the vehicles are all leased to the company, I handed everything over to them. I handed everything over to them. I said, I don't want anything from you. When that didn't go, when that didn't get them what they wanted, then started the threats. So that's where I was when I came to New Mexico to seek out the help of someone who I thought was my friend. My life was being threatened. I was in constant contact via email with Dennis and the other partners. I was being followed. And without a doubt, I feared for my life. Now, why is all of this relevant to a murder in New Mexico? That's the question, right? Because it seems to me that outside of passion crimes, an investigative question that that should always be answered is, who benefits from this crime? In this case, that's, you know, a very easy question to answer. Because the only beneficiaries of this crime were my business partners and my ex-wife in Arizona. Whether I was dead or in prison, they stood to, to benefit. Now look, I had already made every arrangement possible to move to New York. I had filed for divorce in, in Arizona. I had been looking at real estate properties in New Mexico for weeks openly. This was no secret. Because the boy Matani was desperate for money, and he asked me to invest in a property to flip it and split the profits. I agreed because I needed his help. So I agreed to help him in exchange for for his help. But what he also had an idea was he had these desperate ideas or criminalistic agendas in mind. And when he found out that I was going to pay $90,000 for a Porsche, it was scheduled to happen at 10 a.m. on the morning of the crime. Now, he knew this because he was going to drive me. And I knew that he was considering doing something stupid and taking the car owner hostage because originally the owner had encouraged me just to take him a cashier's check and take delivery of the car at his residence. But because I started to think that Eloy might be serious and quite possibly desperate enough to do it, I told the seller, hey, look, meet me inside your bank, which happened to be Wells Fargo, and we'll do the transaction via a transfer of funds. He agreed, and Eloy was not happy. Now, this, of course, led to an argument where I'm telling him, look, I know you want to rob a drug dealer. I know you want to do a crime. I know you're desperate for money, but you have to grow up already. 
you have to move past these childish fantasies that you have in your head. And this led to an argument where lots of insults were aired between us. Again, I've already mentioned this. And I told him that he needed to grow up, as I said. And in response to many other things, he admitted to having slept with my fiance, B. Garcia. Just to hurt me, I guess. So in the morning of the crime, I'm leaving town that day, I think, to New York. After I purchased a car at 10 a.m., I had no intention to see a property. And Aloy, when I spoke to him that morning, he wanted to know if I still wanted a ride to the bank. And actually, like I said before, I didn't expect to ever hear from him again based on the arguments that we had had. So imagine my surprise when he's extending all of rest to me, offering to take me to the bank, and begging me to see one last property before heading to New York. Obviously, I should have hung up the, the phone, but I'm not psychic. Instead, I walked right into a trap. Now, after the fact, I don't know exactly what Dennis intended to do with the wallet. He may have had the murder weapon, too. I don't know. But I don't think he would have wanted that either of those things as just a trophy. He had to have had a purpose for having the victim's wallet. To blackmail me and signing over the money that he wanted? In all honesty, that could have worked. But I know that his plan didn't go as planned because he didn't intend for wallet to fall out of his pocket or his gym bag in the men's locker room. Just like Eloy didn't intend for the neighbor, Mr. Clark, and his daughter to show up at the house right at the point that he was about to either kill or threaten me. But when you look at the totality of the circumstances, you can't separate what happened in Arizona from what happened in New Mexico. One is irreparably linked to the other, and that's exactly what the police investigation did. It ignored everything in Arizona and concluded that I killed a man because Eloy said I did. And the constructed investigation was just constructed to substantiate Eloy's accusation. And when I had to confront that claim with a lawyer that didn't investigate and admittedly wasn't prepared and the accusation levied against me is not one that I could cross-examine, how was I supposed to prove my innocence under those circumstances? It was impossible. The Constitution is meant to protect us from these types of abuses and prosecutorial overreach, and when these rights aren't adhered to, the result is too often a wrongful con conviction. This, I'm not the first. Now listen to this. Years later, a few years, right? Following my conviction, I received a notification from the Arizona courts in Tucson that Dennis Moline, ex-father-in-law, was filing for bankruptcy. And apparently, I was listed as one of his creditors. How curious, right? At first, he claimed that I owed, owed him money. But then when he stays with the entirety of our business interests and doesn't hand over anything to me, to include a portion of my foreign assets, he then had the audacity to list me as his creditor on his bankruptcy in case I ever got out of prison and decided to master him for that. Wow. So as promised, this was how a failed business deal and a divorce in Arizona led to a murder in New Mexico. All beneficiaries of this crime got away with it. Thank you for your attention to this. Thank you for listening. Please follow me on my platforms on Substack, on Twitter, and please send in, keep sending me your uh, your questions because they're very important. Until next time.